It's a real pleasure to welcome A.G. Kawamura, who is an amazing man, a farmer, a farm policy expert, and much more. He's going to discuss global food systems, how to improve their resilience in the face of a changing climate, and other threats to food security. He's a third-generation fruit and vegetable grower and shipper and the owner of Orange County Produce. Many of you know he's the former secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, and he was the secretary for seven years and did some remarkable things to benefit this state and its agricultural economy, which is the number one agricultural economy in the entire United States, twice number two Iowa, three times number three Texas. He's co-chair of the nonprofit organizations Solutions from the Land, and he serves on a number of prestigious boards and committees, including the Agricultural Advisory Committee for the Chicago Council and Agree Initiative, the Board of Agriculture and Natural Resources, which is part of the National Academy of Sciences National Natural Research Council. He's also American Farmland Trust Board, Farm Foundation Board, Western Growers Association, and he's a founding member of the Delta Vision Foundation. And he serves both on the Southern California Water Committee and the California Water Reuse Foundation. Locally, he is the founding chair of Solutions for Urban Agriculture. And he's worked closely with Second Harvest and Orange County Food Banks to create urban aquaculture projects that address nutrition, hunger, and education. And in the next six months or so, there will be a wonderful farm in the Great Park in Irvine featuring all of the crops, fruits and vegetables grown here in California, and I would urge you to go see that. Through his company, Orange County Produce, he and his brother Matt are engaged in building this interactive 70-acre agricultural showcase in the Great Park in Irvine. It's my pleasure to welcome back A.G. Kawamura. It's uh, really exciting to be here with you tonight at the aquarium, uh, exciting to have a chance to talk about uh, really the future of agriculture, but a future that maybe many of you don't quite uh, don't quite know or haven't quite seen yet. And Jerry, to you and the staff specifically, thank you for all the great work that you guys are doing. And um, it, it is all about agriculture, is all about the management of life systems, the sustainable use of resources uh, to create a desired effect. And so what I'd like to do today is really share you share with you uh, a couple thoughts, uh, a couple interesting pictures that uh, allow us to allow us to really understand that we're, we're on a journey. Uh, and the the way I'd like to do that is uh, I'll tell show some pictures. I'll basically do a running narrative of uh, thoughts that we have of where we are, where we've been, uh, and where we're going within agriculture. And then I'd also like to uh, I think inter inter interact a little bit with those of you afterwards, uh, and, and start right now by asking, how many of you have ever uh, seen 
uh, or read about the United Nations, the Sustainable Development Goals that they put out just two years ago, but just by a show of hands, uh, I always like to ask that question. A lot of times I ask it at the end, but I'm asking it at the beginning only to kind of put it as a, a checkpoint on your, on your list of things to take a look at because it's a really remarkable goal. Uh, you know, before the turn of the last, this last century, the millennial goals uh, were uh, delivered by the United Nations. And a lot of people thought those were kind of lofty and very ambitious. But amazingly, by the time we hit the year 2000, most of those goals had been accomplished. And so just two years ago, three years ago, the United Nations came out with uh, their uh, 17 goals of uh, uh, the sustainable development goals to be accomplished by the year 2030. And the amazing thing to think is, well, wait a minute, this is 2018, that's only 12 years from now. And yet that list is probably one of the most remarkable uh, sets of goals that would transform our entire world. It would be a different world if we can achieve those goals by the year 2030, but there's a lot that has to be done to get that to happen, and that's partly part of what my discussion today will be all about. And so the, the management of life systems, as I said, um, it was just not that long ago that we were all brought up, my generation, I'm 62 for the record this year, uh, but for most of us, we were all told that the Cradle of civilization started some 10,000 years ago in the, in the, in the Mesopotamia, in these massive river, river valleys, and that's where agriculture first became uh, uh, an endeavor of mankind. Uh, before that, you have Homo sapiens being a, basically a hunters and gatherers, but this manipulation of the environment to create a more predictable uh, food supply and by manipulation, you're managing life systems, you're structuring things, you're changing your environment, the human environment, the natural environment to meet your goals. Um, archaeologists just recently said, no, it's not 10,000 years ago. It was some 30,000 years ago that that happened. Now, that's an enormous span of time if you think about it. So we don't know this uh, 30,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, some of the most efficient, most uh, aggressive, some of the most... Uh, elegant food systems ever to be conceived by mankind could have existed. And the idea that we can learn from the past to prepare ourselves for the future is, is then uh, really upmost on our list of what we need to do. So if that cradle uh, was moved back to 30,000 years ago, you know, we can just say it's still, uh, it's still rocking. It's still, we're moving uh, into a whole new uh, generation and a whole new dimension of agriculture. And I hope to share that with that you again. Uh, th that with you today as we uh, go forward. So when you look at the management of life systems and you look at this goal to try and get away from scarcity to create abundance, in that endeavor which allows us to be mankind and allows us to have a civilization, um, in other words, the idle time or the time to be able to do all the things that make up a civilization, this creation of abundance is really, really what the, our world is all about. Because the opposite of abundance is what? Scarcity. And with scarcity, you end up with fewer choices. You end up with uh, challenges, uh, political, and, and all the above. Uh, suffering comes. Uh, this idea that a food supply on this planet for nine point something billion people uh, is right ahead of us. And we're either going to do it well or we're going to do it really well or we might stumble and trip and actually have a, a tremendous challenge making it happen. Uh, I will tell you today there are a lot of challenges and I'm not talking about a glass half full today. Uh, I, I'd rather talk about a glass uh, 
half full. I'm sorry, instead of a glass half empty, I'd rather talk about this glass half full that there's a lot to be optimistic about. I could spend the day, I, I've got a great violin, I didn't bring it with me, or a cello as a farmer. I can complain a lot about, about a lot of things. Um, but the fact is, um, there's some really neat things taking place. And in that indulgence then that we're experiencing now, where you go to a store and you cannot believe the number of choices in that store. That world of abundance, that luxury of abundance that we have, at times you can call it an indulgence we have because when you have so many choices, what happens with the public is they start to view that their, their choices as being better than someone else's choices. You start to see them have preferences. And we've created a society currently a little disconnected from its food supply where so many people think that uh, one kind of food is not good for you, one kind of food is is shouldn't be eaten, one kind of food is uh, not uh, humane enough, one kind of food is this or that. And because we have so much abundance, it's great to have choices. It's great that the choices are available to everybody in, in this country, uh, let alone other countries. But uh, of course, we recognize that there's so many places where scarcity is the norm, where uh, deprivation is the norm, where you, people don't know uh, millions and millions don't know where their next meal will be coming from. And so it, it's kind of as if food is not a privilege. Uh, that's my, my observation. And I get in arguments with some of my friends, and I say it's not a privilege. It should be a privilege if we have abundance, that everybody should have access to food. But if you can't promise that you can produce the food all the time, that's where I say food uh, is a privilege. It's a privilege that we have the ability, that we have the toolbox to be able to produce enough food to create the abundance, then that allows us to say that we shouldn't have hunger on the planet or things like that. Um, and it's in that uh, frame of mind that I'd like to understand that um, the spice of life is just this. We are going to continue to see uh, an enormous driver uh, across the globe, the globe about all the different kinds of cuisines, all the different kind of cultures, all the different kind of blending of things that are, are transpiring at this time to give us a robust toolbox to be able to produce the abundance that we want. And yet, it was just in this last century, in the 1900s, uh, that tremendous advances took place. Uh, how many people even know who Norman Borlaug is? Just by a raise hands, I'm looking out to the audience, and there's very few hands that go up. He's kind of, kind of the father of modern agriculture. He was one of the very first traditional breeders to create uh, strains of rice, that, uh, strains of wheat that he knew would be able to withstand some of these enormous disease problems and, and, and other uh, climatic problems that were affecting the, some of the global food supply. And he was the only farmer uh, researcher to ever be given the global, uh, the Nobel Food Prize, the, no, the Nobel Peace Prize for food production. Um, that was in the 1930s. And it's, uh, we can see that this challenge that we have of uh, capacity, this is the first time in our lifetimes, my lifetimes, is the first time in the history of uh, civilization that we have the capacity to feed everybody on the planet. Uh, but we don't choose to do so. That lack of willpower is, is something that these sustainable development goals then allude to, that we have decisions, we have choices every day. We choose different things of value. And if one of those things that we value the most, for example, would be the children on the planet, those would be the kinds of things that we'd start to invest in. Those are the kinds of things that we'd want to make sure that there's an ample food supply, an abundant food supply for everybody on the planet. And, and yet, to think that this all has to happen uh, within 18 to 2018, within 12 years, is, is somewhat 
of a leap of imagination, but it's not. It's not a leap of imagination. Um, this man is, uh, was my uncle who taught me how to farm, uh, and I happened to farm just down the road here at Seal Beach at the, on the weapon station, and my good friend Roy Perchy, he's, that's not him, but my good friend Roy Perchy, he's 92, still farming. He's 93 this year. He's still farming. He remembers uh, the names of his horses uh, when I'm sitting in the coffee shop talking with him. And he'll say, oh, yeah, there was Baldy and Claude. They were two big draft horses, and we had a little horse named Dolly. And Dolly had kind of small feet, and all the Japanese-American farmers would come and borrow Dolly because uh, when she cultivated their field, she wouldn't step on the plants. And, and we say, oh, well, that's precision agriculture, an early, early example of precision agriculture, if nothing else. But this idea that here's a guy uh, still farming alive today that didn't have a tractor when he started out. He started, he told me one day that in 1939 was the last hurricane to hit uh, Orange County, LA, Southern California, 1939. He was 14 year old, it was a 14-year-old kid. He had just finished harvest, it was Sunday evening. They were in the house. They had finished harvesting. It was September 29th, 1939. Um, and he went outside, and he looked up, and these enormous clouds were coming in. He put his hand out, and a big old raindrop hit it. So if you go online and look up the 1939 Newport Beach hurricane, um, you'll see this amazing video filmed at the entrance of the Newport jetty. But it's the truth that that, after about a 10-day heat spell, uh, the ocean heated up, and uh, they call it a Chabasco, a Mexican hurricane came up the coast, and instead of turning inland like they usually do, it tracked straight up and hit uh, Orange County and L.A. broadside with six inches of rain overnight, no warning. All the people were out on the ocean. So if you get a chance to see that video, it's just remarkable seeing these enormous waves uh, uh, coming in through uh, and boats trying to get in and overturning coming in through the jetty. But uh, he told me that story. This is my friend, the farmer, telling me this horrible story that I had no idea that a hurricane might hit us someday after a heat spell. And I can't tell you how many now years have gone by since he told me that story uh, about eight years ago, seven years ago, where I don't think and I don't track and now that we have these enormous wonderful technologies that can track ocean temperatures that, uh, that we can watch these patterns uh, I'm ready and I'm braced for that eventuality because eventually it's going to happen and yet many of us have no idea that it's even it's an even a possibility and this is what I mean about the unpredictability of, of our weather systems we are talking about changing climates or climate change and the only thing that we do understand those of us that are farmers that's unequivocal is that unpredictable weather means unpredictable harvest we, we like predictable weather because then we can plan then we can do all the things we want to do. But the unpredictability of it creates havoc. Uh, this freeze just this last couple of weeks was pretty tough. And I can tell you that um, it, this is an ex extreme example of a drought uh, not here. But the drought that we just went through, uh, I farmed down in the San Juan Capistrano River shed. And our water went, uh, we have a well that went dry in year three of the drought. Uh, and by year four, we had a little bit left. And we actually had to walk away from that ranch. Had it been my only field, there was no plan B, no other source of water that had been our only farm. We would have been out of business. Uh, I farm here in Seal Beach, uh, right near the ocean where the well field is. And as the drought got worse last year, uh, and in year five, 2016 going into 2017, before the rain started, um, we had a lot enough saltwater intrusion on one of our wells that we had to shut it down. And that 
was another example, but I had a few other wells that had better water, so I had a plan B that I could go to. But had our drought continued into year six, seven, eight, nine, ten, similar to Australia's 12, 10, 11, 12 year drought, I, I can tell you without any uh, hesitation that the ag systems of California would have been incredibly impaired, if not crippled, uh, for, for almost. Uh, Australia lost 50% of their ag production. I don't know that we would lose that much, but we have other systems in place. But I, I will tell you, we would have been in deep trouble. And the fact that the populations that observe these things, the fact that we can go online, the fact that uh, my wife sitting in the audience, she used to always wonder, why do you watch the weather station when we first met so much? And it was my favorite channel, because it, it gives us the background on understanding what in the world are we going to do how do we make our decisions? And with the new technology, this digitalization of information, of systems, of satellites, viewing uh, every movement and the ability to get better and better at forecasting, uh, we're on our way to at least having some tools in the toolbox that help us be more resilient. And resilience is then part of this discussion today is how do we build resilience into our food systems? Um, I know that the challenges we face as a, as a country are are, are extreme if uh, the weather patterns significantly change. We're, we're seeing unusual weather everywhere on the planet, and so as we start to address that, uh, we have to understand that there's only a few things that uh, we should remember. Uh, when 1% of the population in the United States now is uh, actually farming and producing and earning an income out of agriculture, when my friend Roy, uh, who's 92 years old, when he started, when he was born, uh, it was 30% of the American population earned a living from agriculture. And just 20-something uh, years earlier, turn of the century, 1900, 40% of the American population earned a living through agriculture. Uh, we are currently 99% of the American population doesn't have anything to do with producing the food. You might argue maybe it's 2% that are actually farming. And if you use the, the whole food chain, uh, those who prepare the food, those who uh, cook the food, those who serve the food, those who, are, those who deliver the food, those who truck the food, those who cool the food or process the food. If you call the people that are in the food, that are in the food chain uh, part of this population, that, that might get you up close to 8 or 9 or 10 percent of the American population has something to do with food. But the actual producers currently in California are only 1 percent. And this idea that our food supply will always be there when you go to the store, we hope that. We assume that that's going to be the case. But it, it, it is comes down to maybe some of the things that when you have this disconnect where 99% of the people kind of forget uh, how hard it is to get that food on the table, how hard it is to get it to get it to the market, um, it, it's of alarm to those of us from agriculture because we see it. We see people attacking the ag industry. We see people unhappy with the ag industry as if they're separate from it. But you're complicit because you eat. You're part of the ag system. You're part of the food system. And if there's one thing I can impart with you today is how important it is that understanding that this is not something you can uh, take for granted is as important as anything I could say to you. Um, Carl Sandburg, a very important philosopher, and leader in our country once said that when a nation forgets its hard, its hard beginnings, when a nation forgets its hard beginnings, it's beginning to decay. Um, we, we, we really recognize that if we live in a world of abundance where everything seems to always be automatic, we can lose sight of then just how hard it is to make sure we can be there tomorrow with that same food supply. Uh, I know that for my own uh, operations that we see that 
um, the cost of water, the cost of labor, the cost of uh, paying for rent. I don't own any of the ground I farm on. I lease ground. And we are always looking for new things uh, that we can invest in. In fact, the, all farmers, all the people in agriculture, um, the one thing that you can always say about us as well is that uh, we'll invest in uh, things that will give us a higher predictability of our outcome. In other words, if things that will give us a better outcome in our agricultural endeavor, a new tractor, a new new kinds of plants, new kinds of uh, crop tools, new kinds of technologies. When water is very scarce or very expensive, we started to look at these uh, hydroponic uh, bags with a, a coconut uh, a fiber inside of it to see if we could grow some strawberries. Um, we kind of messed up on this because we put the, the top layer a little too high. So if you were kind of short, you kind of had a hard time get, getting up to them. And we should have thought about, well, wait a minute. You've got to put the strawberries low enough so it's easier to harvest. But these kind of systems that we can invest in. Um, I know that my company, uh, we've been in business uh, for 70 years now. 1946 is when our company started. We've been actually here in, in Orange County uh, for over 60 years. And um, we were not the early innovators. We were not the early adapters. Uh, I know our next door neighbors, while we were still furrow irrigating, they shifted into sprinklers. And then they shifted from sprinklers to drip. And we were always kind of a, a couple years behind watching them uh, change. We were good at marketing, so I think that's the main reason we stayed in business for so many years, and we had to become better farmers. But today, um, so much of what we do depends on this enormous flow of information. Uh, it used to come from the land-grant colleges. I, I, I look in the audience, I know there's a few people uh, that are not so young. I see there's some very young people, but there's this, remember the, the term microfiche, where you used to go down to a laboratory, and there's this, um, they took pictures, and you put, look on a little uh, overhead screen to kind of look at the uh, reproductions. There was no such thing as, you know, we didn't have our cell phones and we didn't have a computer to go and push a button and, and get all the information that's ever been uh, at your fingertips. And yet this flow of information uh, today is partly what gives me such great uh, optimism about what's going to happen next. Um, we used to depend on the land-grant college then, uh, and for many of you who understand that, Land-grant college is one of the greatest inventions uh, of modern man uh, or all of man because the statement was that everybody should have access to knowledge and everybody should access to education. And if the education is a little complicated, they created the cooperative extension to transfer the knowledge so it was applicable and usable by those who might not be that well educated but still needed the knowledge to transfer and use it. And especially for the farmers that were out there, this was the flow of information that helped us learn how to do the things we do today. Were there mistakes made? Yes. Were there different ways of looking at things today that didn't that looked different than uh, back then? Yes. Are there new tools coming forward? Uh, absolutely. And is the land-grant college um, system in our country and around the world uh, stepping into the 21st century? Arguably not, arguably yes. It, it's, it needs to jump forward, and I think this, uh, this ability to uh, raise the education level or the, the, the vision level, let's call it, uh, in our world has never needed more assistance from our educational systems than it does today. Um, the use of these new technologies then uh, comes at a time when you also need to revisualize and rethink uh, what is it that we're trying to accomplish uh, this is the El Toro Marine Base. Uh, for the last 
12 years, I've been fortunate enough, 10 years, we've been fortunate enough to start to actually work with the city of Irvine as they transition this old uh, military airport. It was going to be an international airport, but then they said, no, we're going to create a tremendous park out of it. We're going to call it the Great Park. It'll be twice the size of Central uh, the Central Park in New York. It'll be one of the greatest metropolitan parks uh, uh, of this 21st century, built in the 21st century. So it's uh, completely transforming itself. This was uh, maybe about 10 years ago, eight years ago, this picture. Um, and yet we're farming in between uh, the runways. Uh, I know it's a fuzzy picture, but uh, it's amazing. The resources that are available to uh, the world today, uh, the ones that we understand what resources, resources are and the underutilized resources, this is one of the things that I think is extremely exciting for the urban ag sector is to repurpose and to reutilize uh, pro properties and, and uh, assets that are uh, underutilized or sitting idle. Um, I always complain that I can't find 40 acres of, of agricultural ground, good ground here in uh, Orange County. Uh, and yet, if you go to Detroit, there's 40 square miles of abandoned properties. In the greater LA area, uh, Orange County, LA, or Southern California, there's about 40 square miles of abandoned, underutilized, uh, uh, un uh, touched to properties that could be utilized and turned into food, food production system centers uh, or, or food production uh, plots, if you will. Uh, and and all that's all we're waiting for then is for somebody to kind of look and say, oh, um, why don't we like this field here? Why don't we take this abandoned golf course? This is out there at the Great Park as well. This was an abandoned golf course. It was uh, my strawberry field just two years ago. Um, it's going to be houses soon. But uh, for the time being, this interim use and ability to repurpose a, an asset is tremendous. We farm under the power lines. We look for, it's funny, I, my friends wonder, well, how, do you, how, how can you farm the way you do? And I go, well, it's kind of simple. You go driving around, I see a vacant lot, and if I see the weeds are growing really well, I know it's a good piece of ground. If I can see a fire hydrant or something close by, I can tell that, oh, I've got a water source, and that's really all I know. The sun's there, so I've got all the components to produce uh, something. I live in this wonderful climate of Orange County, which allows us to produce crops 52 weeks out of the year, whereas if you're in Minnesota, you're a little constrained, or other places where you have a, a freeze, a deep freeze in the winter. But the point is, the ability to produce a crop anywhere, whether it's under the ocean, on the ocean, on the, in Antarctica, in Mars, you saw the movie, uh, or anywhere, it, you need just a handful of things, uh, and they need to be dependable, and you need to have access to them, and they can't be too expensive to use, but when you bring them together, some kind of light, some kind of uh, soil or, or substrate where your roots can dangle in, and the water, and the minerals that go with it, that you're in the food production business. Um, we can do a lot uh, with a little. Uh, that's really the direction that's, that our modern agriculture is being forced to go. We do a lot with a little, less water, less minerals, less fertilizer, less pesticides, less, we, we call all those things crop tools, but all the things that you need, try and get more production out of less and try to do it efficiently, try and do it sustainably, try and do it for some people organically, some people uh, with 
there's nothing uh, added, but get smarter about how you're going to use those resources and the human and the life systems that you have to manage and pull them together. You know, it's only going to be a short time before uh, I, I think before you see the driverless tractors, uh, truck tra trucks on the road, you're going to see driverless tractors uh, in a lot of places. We have our 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 tractors uh, rigged up with satellite systems so at least the driver doesn't have to drive when the satellite's on driving the the precision agriculture uh, rows uh, on a grid uh, year after year in the same piece and and uh, enormous amount of new uh, technology then coming in to uh, agriculture at this time again thinking about my friend Roy with his horses you just can't believe these advances that we're seeing and this idea that uh, um, the food system itself is in a transformational stage where uh, I'll talk about uh, uh, manufactured foods like 3D printed foods and some of the other things in just a second, but uh, we're, we're just at a place where um, you have to almost do a reset button. Uh, Mark Twain said that you can't trust your judgment if your imagination is out of focus. Uh, our Imagination is out of focus as a society. Our imagination is out of focus as a world. We're, we've been kind of stuck in a 20th century pattern. It is time to get out of the 20th century, reach into this new 21st century, and start to look at the world through a different lens. And like any other thing, when you look through glasses through a different lens, your vision changes. And that's what's starting to happen. Uh, our vision has to change in our food systems about what's possible. It doesn't mean that you can feed the world from a rooftop. It doesn't mean that you're not going to stop. You must stop all cattle grazing or all food production in the, in the Midwest. Don't mistake transformative agriculture with the capacity to produce enough calories on the planet to feed the world that exists. A um, lot of people suddenly say, I've got my garden, I don't need agriculture, I've got my community garden, who needs this, or I'm buying from whole, you know, whatever the, the supermarket is, I don't need any other food system, uh, it's right there. Don't forget that this system that we have, in fact, uh, all these different amazing systems that we can create now, because this is off-the-shelf stuff, um, we always say that uh, we can thank the marijuana growers of the world for coming out of the closet, not because of the marijuana, but because of the amazing technology they brought with them. There was a lot of neat technology that was kind of, you know, undercover, if you will, closed environment, uh, really efficient systems for, uh, for um, uh, computer-driven uh, precise measurements of the nutrients given to the plants, these different systems of aeroponics, hydroponics, aquaponics, all of those are coming into full uh, view right now, and more importantly, full availability. I could take this room, and in a short time, uh, this, this entire room, I could go online and probably turn it into a food production system probably in about three weeks. You have scaffolds, you could grow stuff vertically. All of these things that are happening are, are really remarkable. Uh, this, this is not a walk. This is actually, a, a, you're looking into a barrel, a 55-gallon drum barrel, the kind of those plastic barrels you see all over the place, the ones that hold gas. And if you take a, a, a barrel, and if you, this is a light inside of the barrel, and the, the, the plants are rotating around the light. This is uh, from Omega Gardens, one of the really advanced systems that are out there. Uh, with different ways of looking at how you might produce food. But if you were to take the barrel, cut it, lay it open, you'd need two or three lights.
to make those plants grow. But because it's in a barrel system and the, the plants are rotating around the barrel, kind of like the earth rotates around the sun, um, it's amazing. The plants grow significantly faster. And because they're struggling with uh, gravity as they grow, they're kind of doing calisthenics. They actually have a lot more uh, um, uh, vitamin uptakes uh, as, as a plant. And so um, these systems, you know, before you realize what you're looking at, you realize, well, a canister system like a can bunch of cans in a vending machine, uh, if you blow up that to a size of a building and all these barrels can be moved around like a, like a, um, like a vending machine that, that will go through, they're replaceable, they, you harvest, you put another one, you change it in, and before you know it, they're all interchangeable. Systems like these um, are emerging right now as we speak. Uh, the thought is they're out in the, out in the desert, out in Las Vegas, they're building some uh, amazing uh, automated systems that are, are going to be out, coming online pretty soon. And I think what you see in this innovative inter interpretations uh, of what New Vision is all about, um, you start to realize that, wow, um, for me, I wonder if I'm going to be a dinosaur with some of the crops that I'm growing because someone else is going to come along and grow something uh, that I grow currently in the fields, but they're going to just get it done in a much faster way. That is the future for some of these products. This is uh, one of the, our neighbors that just is struggling. It's still a struggle to make the business work, the business model work. You have to be good at growing. You have to be good at marketing. You have to watch your costs. But this system, which was losing so little water that they actually got an atmospheric water harvester inside the building that pulled that water out of the atmosphere. There was a carbon filter and an ultraviolet light that purified it. And they ended up with pure water. And then they had to add back their minerals to feed this system. This is wheatgrass and some other sprouts. But there was, they were, it was using about 90% less water than an open field. And again, the harvest routine, when you grow some of these systems like lettuce, uh, instead of getting like I would get normally right now, two or three harvests maybe, but usually two harvests a year. If I was growing lettuce nonstop, what you get is maybe five or six harvests because you can make it come that make the plant grow in uh, instead of 50 days, it's 28 days. And you can, it's amazing the kind of production you have. But the new thinking that has come into our uh, reality zone, if you will, is, is not things you dream about. Today, 60% of all the vine ripe tomatoes in America uh, are being produced in indoor uh, hothouse greenhouses, closed environment systems, uh, either in Canada, Mexico, or in the United States. And these vines, you know, they can go down a 30-foot vine that just keeps on growing as long as the tip is there. Uh, these are all part of the new systems that you see everywhere. This idea that uh, we can transform our communities, and this is what I, was, uh, I just wanted to have you close your eyes a sec. The city of the future. Uh, you remember the uh, Epcot was the, was the, the experimental progressive city of tomorrow down at, down at Disneyland in Orlando. That city of tomorrow was, was trying to say, what does it look like 100 years out, 20 years out? And it's amazing how close to on the mark they've continued to be because we're, we're going to see, as we hear uh, about mega cities, over 20 million people. Well, we already have Mexico City, Tokyo, the LA area, where you have 20, 30 million people living in a very small area. Uh, and the thought was by many demographers that we're going to create these enormous mega cities everywhere 
I don't necessarily doubt that, but I think there's going to be a lot of enormously vi viable and incredibly livable cities when you master the nexus between water, energy, and food, and you put them to play in small communities, maybe 20,000 people, 30,000 people, 50,000 people, where you basically go off grid with your food supply, your water supply, your energy supply, because you can, because their technologies are all there today, and it just requires a different vision to understand that this is what we might do, what we can do, and the job creation and the ability to kind of create these really vibrant communities is what this is all about. Um, the new thinking then that comes about uh, when you're looking at systems like these is, is that, you know, the things we hold valuable in our lives, you know, we choose to invest money. You know, the thought that, oh, this tree has great value if it, you pick it up where you were going to normally tear it down and just, you know, uh, uh, shred it up and make it part of a, a, a compost pile. Uh, a tree like this in a brand new neighborhood has got tremendous value, so it's worth the dig it up out of the ground, pick it up with a technology, by the way, that's over 200 plus years, um, pick it up out of the ground and just move it and pop it into the new neighborhood. Well, the purpose of this, and this is not the tree of knowledge, by, by the way, um, is that we have this amazing uh, tendency to recognize that we'll invest and we'll put a lot of money into things we care about. And part of the challenges we have right now is that we really want to care about uh, this system that's up ahead of us. What, what is it going to look like? What is this world going to be all about? Um, the Sustainable Development Goals, please, please uh, look at the list. Tell your friends to look at the list. Tell your friends in business, if you're in a business, how do you align your business with all the different goals on the list? I've never had a better chance to describe why agriculture is important to this world. I've never had a better chance to feel good about agriculture and why uh, the fact is there's, I believe there's nine out of these 17 goals and actually even more uh, that will tell you in a second in my world that we can't achieve these goals by the year 2030 if agriculture is not doing well. If agriculture is not doing well for this planet, uh, as I said earlier, we enter into a world of scarcity with the scarcity comes political unrest. With the political unrest comes regime change and all kinds of problems. Uh, when we have a, a world of abundance, we at least have a chance to thrive. And in that opportunity to thrive, we actually have a chance as a human species to evolve a little bit and, and, and really make something of this world that's different than the horrible 20th century and the centuries before where we were fighting mostly because we were in a state of survival. Our goal as a world is to be in a state of living. The goal of being in a state of living then means that we have to envision uh, the things that we want in that world, and more importantly, then we have to embrace uh, those components, the infrastructure that allows abundance and, and uh, the ability to live and to thrive, make that happen. Um, this was the former officer's housing tract, where they took off the houses, they pulled off the cement, and guess what was underneath the cement foundations? Great soil. There was great soil, and so this project at the Great Park, which uh, uh, we had just recently, was uh, a custom growing food for the food bank. Uh, a different paradigm, a different uh, example of what's possible. And so all I want to leave you with here then is transformation is possible every day in every category, in every endeavor of mankind. 
in my world of agriculture, I, I just, I'm a believer in it. I would like to invite you to be a believer that ag in agriculture as well. And more importantly, join. Uh, don't be a, on the sidelines. You're a stakeholder. You eat. You're complicit with everything that takes place with agriculture. Um, understand that the systems are not uh, without their faults. Understand that the systems, more importantly, uh, need help. We need that robust toolbox moving into the future. And more importantly, um, we're busy trying to make it happen. So with that, I think I'll leave you, and I, hopefully we'll have a couple questions or I can answer uh, some of your thoughts.